Welcome to Books on Air, the podcast that tells the story behind the book. It includes insights from authors about how they compose their work, what inspires them, and what they hope you'll take away from their book. Here's your host for this episode of Books on Air, Suzanne Harris. Welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm Sloan Fremont filling in for Suzanne Harris. This is a podcast where listeners get the secret story behind every book. Joining me today is Kim Hopkins, author of the book, Shopping with a Schizophrenic. Kim's book shares the story of her son's diagnosis with mental illness, the course they took to find help, and the reality of day-to-day living with a person encumbered by mental illness and physical disabilities. Kim, welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Thanks. It's, um, it's great to be here today. Yeah. So let's start out telling the audience a little bit about yourself, your son, and what led you to write your book, Shopping with a Schizophrenic. Well, I'm uh, actually a semi-retired registered nurse. I worked for 40 years in a community hospital and uh, the ICU and the emergency department. Um, I actually had my first son, Corey, who is the subject of this book, um, actually when I was 18. Uh, And, you know, I didn't really have any experience babysitting. Uh, My younger brother was four and a half years younger than me. Mm -hmm. So, I really didn't have a lot of experience with kids right off the get go. He had issues with back in 1970, he was born with a thyroid that didn't work at all. It's called Mm -hmm. congenital hypothyroidism. Nowadays they screen newborns for that. Mm -hmm. If they don't catch it early enough, that can lead to profound retardation. I had a great uh, pediatrician who picked up on it at age six weeks and we were able to start treatment with him then. So if you can imagine here, I've got an 18-year-old mother uh, taking care of a, a kid with hypothyroidism, where in every few months we had to bump up the thyroid and till he became hyperthyroid and then back it off. So I was managing this drug for my son at that age. Mm. Uh, later on, when he was uh, four or five, we found out he was basically allergic to about everything that grew on the planet. He had constant sinusitis and uh, couldn't breathe and horrible allergies. And we had to, uh, you know, get him treated for that. Allergy shots weekly, um, antihistamines. So, you know, he's on these medications that are, are, are going to have some side effects. So when he started having trouble in school, like in kindergarten, I thought, you know, I, I don't think he's ready to go to first grade. So we had mm-hmm. him had him repeat kindergarten. And then we moved to uh, Missouri in a very small town, 300 people with a very small school, two grades per classroom. So that really, I think, was to his benefit because we had uh, teachers that were able to hone in if he wasn't paying attention, uh, that kind of thing. And he he did very well. Uh, Nowadays, he probably would have also been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, but, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, throughout his growing up, he just had, had um, you, would, you would assign him a task, go clean your room, go rake the yard, go, you know, vacuum out the above ground pool. And you'd look in there five or 10 minutes later, and there he is just stock still talking animatedly with nobody. Oh. And I would say, well, who are you talking to? And he's like, nobody. I'm like, okay, so what would you think? He, he, he an overactive imagination right I I never said he had you know invisible friends or anything like that but but he was once he got into high school then he's the odd kid you know Mm -hmm. the one that well let me tell you he cannot read body language 
So if okay. you're done with the conversation, he doesn't know that, you know? Okay. <laughs> so, so, and you know, as for fashion choices, anything goes and he didn't care, which was fine with me, you know, I, right. who cares what anybody else thinks, but when he got towards, I mean, I was even scared for him to drive something mm-hmm. inside of me said, I, I don't, I don't think he can handle this. He made it out of, out of high school. You know, some grades were good. Some grades were bad. And we, he went to a, a college about 50 miles away. And I said, look, we'll, we'll pay for the college as long as you uh, make passing grades. Mm-hmm. And he, he really did not, you know, right. uh, it was, it was just, and so my mother who was in special ed in elementary school for years and looked out in Oregon said, send him out to me and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what's going on. So I sent him out to her. He's about 19 at this time. And she actually um, had uh, one of her psychology friends kind of screen him and they didn't come up with anything. He attended college out there three, three quarters and did okay in his classes, but socially, social wise, he wasn't making any friends his age. He was hanging out with the afternoon with the uh, neighborhood kids. And, mm-hmm. and to me, this was like, he was not emotionally, socially advancing you know right uh-huh. and and my mother was also concerned about this so we brought him back home he decides he wants to be an auto mechanic well his dad was an auto mechanic at one point in time so he goes to this uh school up in nebraska for about two quarters and finally one of the uh, um professors called and said you know there's something wrong with him he needs to he either needs to see a psychologist he's not socially you know fitting in his grades aren't up to par and by this time I was at my wits end. he is not stupid right he is an intelligent person but he could not work at McDonald's and I knew this right you know so but what what is it right what's going on here right yeah so I was able to um Voc Rehab got in on this um and they actually sent him down to a hospital in Kansas City no longer exists but had a psych unit and for two weeks, he was down there five days a week, and they came up with the diagnosis schizophreniform disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I mean, mental health was not my strong point in school. I'm going to admit that right now, because during all this time, I went to college and uh, got my BSN in nursing. Mm-hmm. So they said, all we need to do is getting set up with the uh, community mental health center. We'll start him on a pill, and you'll be great. I'm like, that sounds pretty pie in the sky, but let's go for it. <laughs> right. You know, so we, we started him on a medication and oh my God, um, as a nurse, uh, the first psychotropic medication we tried him on, which is an older one, Loxetan, because we're talking about the nineties here, right. it basically made him look like he would sit there like in a catatonic state and drool. Oh. Well, that's not going to work. So right. then we switched him to another one that whenever he stood up, he had orthostatic hypotension and he face plant. And mm-hmm. my husband at, at, at that time, his father said, this, <laughs> this is ridiculous. And I'm right. like, yes, it is. And in the meantime, he at age 45 had his first heart attack. So we were dealing with that. My mother died of cancer and Corey. Oh, so wow. I said, I'm going to read every book I can on, on this and, and see what I, cause this is before internet. Right. right before right. internet, so I read everything that I could on it and decided that uh, pretty much we're all schizophrenic is just a degree, right? Yeah, that's what I've decided after all that. Yeah. So, but one of the books I read said you should have a complete medical screening. So mm-hmm. I took it to his doctor and I said they they recommend an MRI here, 
And so by this time, the state had disabled him over this diagnosis. Okay. So he got disability like at 2021, something like that. So um, we got an MRI ordered and we found a huge arterial venous malformation in his brain, in the left side of his brain, which is basically a conglomeration of blood vessels. The arteries go straight into the veins. They don't feed the tissues. If you can imagine a big ball of twine increasing with the pressure, then all of a sudden it explodes. And it's the biggest cause of a hemorrhagic stroke in young people there are. They rate them on a scale of one to six. His was a five. Wow. So regardless, we had to have that resected. Mm-hmm. And um, in 1975, we did. And he en- encountered catastrophic uh, complications. He was on the table for 14 hours. He went through 30 units of blood. Oh they brought God. him out and said, I, I don't think he's going to make it. We had feeders we couldn't even find. And uh, he did. He was in a coma for 30 days. Uh, when he came out of that coma, he had to learn how to walk, how to talk, how to eat, how to do everything. So he was in inpatient uh, for six months and outpatient for six months and came out with residual right-sided paralysis and blind in one eye and central vision only in the other. So didn't get him back on a psychotropic drug. That was the least of our worries at this point in time. Right. Two years after the surgery, he had a seizure and, um, they put him in the hospital, put him on Dilantin, a very common anti-seizure drug that's been out for years. And within two weeks, he was in a full-blown psychotic episode. And I go through this in my book. It was if, if, if the coma was a horrible time in our lives, this unbelievably was worse. Mm-hmm. So we had a son who just absolutely, totally lost uh, contact with all reality. Mm-hmm. I, I was having a heck of a time trying to get help. We brought him back, took him in for a CAT scan. Uh, can't do an MRI anymore. He's got clips in his head. Uh, that, I mean, he was schizophrenic before brain surgery. Right. Okay. So I read, I'm reading again, the physician's desk reference and every drug that manages seizures other than two can cause hallucinations, confusion, and Dilantin's one of them. Oh now, trying to get his neurologist convinced of this was MS, but we got him changed to Tegretol, which is one of the drugs that does not. But it, it trying to get him in, by this time, he's sleeping four hours a day. He's mm-hmm. in our house. He's up wandering. He's out in the yard. He's talking nonsense. Nobody's sleeping. And I cannot get him admitted inpatient because he's not a danger to anybody else right and he's not threatening suicide right but no way can he take care of himself right so i had taken him to two er's at this point in time the second one hoping that we'd get an inpatient admission and here they're talking this is just amazing i'm a nurse i'm like how can this be happening they're talking to a simply crazy person and they say he doesn't meet the criteria how you know I, so I went home and I thought the next day, what, what are we going to do? He's not sleeping. I'm not sleeping. My husband's not sleeping. And you have to be up. You don't know if he's going to turn the stove on. You don't right. know if he's wandering down. You know, you don't. So I called the crisis center. And, and this is the point in my book that I think I've hit my lowest. It's when I understood how murder suicides can happen. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. I called the crisis center. Like, can you take him to an ER? I'm like, no. I've been to two in the last two weeks or the last week. 
They do the same things. I'm a nurse. They're going to run a CAT scan, a drug screen. We're going to sit there for six hours. He's going to be bouncing off the walls and they're going to say, you know, nothing's out of whack. Right. But you're a crazy person. You right. know, now listen, I'm not the only one going through this. One in five people have a mental illness. You know, it's, it's documented by NAMI. So, so the, the, here we have this great health system, but mental health system is just nuts. So I just told her, I said, um, I'm not taking him again. And I'm just telling you, I now know how murder suicides happen. And I mm -hmm. put the phone down. Now, I don't think I could have done it, but okay. I thought, I thought there's a gun in the closet. You know, how you're at your wits end, you haven't slept, you know. Yeah, you're at your breaking oh, point. Exactly. You know, and she called me back and uh, said, can you get the records from one of those visits? And I said, yes. You know, one of them was at my hospital. So right. they sent him up. And by the time they got down there, he had it in his mind that his dad was not giving him his thyroid medication and he tried to hit him with a cane. Voila, we have the attend to hurt somebody criteria. Mm -hmm. Finally, you know, mm -hmm. so we, we got him in um, to an inpatient psych. Now, in, in, even in those days, insurance doesn't pay for mental health. They right. hardly pay anything now. So and he's on Medicaid. He was hospitalized for six weeks, six weeks until we could get him to where he could have a coherent conversation. Right. Okay. And then we get him home. He's almost like a zombie. He's drugged up to the max, right. but I'm happy with this because it's better than what we had. So as we are going through this process, we had through the community mental health center and mental health aides and LPN that come out and check on him. And one of them, bless her heart, because I'm so close to it, you know, right. she says, I, I don't think this antidepressant is really working for him. And I'm like, God, I don't want to rock the boat. And she's like, well, I think we need to rock it a little bit because mm -hmm. and, and finally, through her actions and the psychiatrist we're seeing, then we got him to where he was at least more of a semblance of his, of his old self, you know. Right. And then because we live in this rural area and he cannot drive. He has no social interaction. Right. Um, chose to see what other housing and opportunities because we're not going to be around, you right. know, like so many others out here to take care of him. I mean, I'm assuming he's going to outlive me now, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So we managed to, and I'm making a long story short here, get him over in an apartment in the town he went to high school with, mm -hmm. uh, seven miles uh, north of us. And he knows a lot of people and they know him. And he's been actually other than hospitalizations, been living by himself in an apartment with a home health aide that comes in three times a week. His father, who just passed away this last November, and me, we are uh, divorced now, you know, see him every single day or talk with him every single day or check on him and make sure he takes his medication every single because he would not. He's right. on medication three times a day and he just wouldn't remember it or whatever, but he's able to go out and go shopping. He's able to walk around town. He has social interactions, but, but, you know, what I wanted people to know and how I got into this was after we got him kind of smoothed out a little bit and, and th certainly things change after brain surgery and certainly right. things aren't, you know, uh, quasi-moto or however you want to say it, normal with, when you're living with somebody with a mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, I was telling my girlfriends about some of this things he did and some of the stories we had and they kept saying you should write a book yeah and i've written two books 
I wrote two books prior to his brain surgery and had them circulating around in, into a, a traditional publishing at that point in time and had one book sent back for a rewrite when he um, went into his surgery and coma. So that kind of derailed that. And I thought, well, I just retired and, uh, you know, I can certainly do it. It's not like I have to make anything up, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's how that came about, really. And when I started posting about this and on Facebook and set up a Facebook page, I mean, I got so many messages from yeah, everybody sure. else who were living with people in their family, in the closet with horrendous things, you know, that yeah, they were and I, and I hear you tell your story. I mean, the first thing that jumps out at me is the intuition that, that, that feeling you had that something wasn't right and your willingness to step up and take action about that and not, mm -hmm. not not let it go, not stop until you had answers and being willing to do the research, find the answers, bring, ask, ask for help. Because that's another part of, of things too. I think a lot of times people are afraid to ask for help or they don't know, they think maybe they're overreacting, right? So being able to follow that nudge, that intuitive nudge you had and not stop until you got answers. Um, but also like you're saying, being able to tell your story, you know, other people who are going through that, who maybe aren't talking about it or afraid to talk about it or simply don't know, having your story out there, I'm sure it makes, helps other people to see, okay, I'm not alone in this and I can, I can get help. So what would your message be to listeners today who are maybe facing something like this or know somebody like that's going through something like this? What would you offer them? You know, for one thing, uh, the NAMI, the National Association of Mentally Ill People is out there to help, uh, almost anybody, uh, mm -hmm. groups for families with uh, mental illness and that kind of thing, they can at least put you in touch with people that are going through the very same thing right? or something similar to you. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that's a huge thing. I mean, you're not in this alone, really, you're not. And they can help you navigate uh, the mental health system, which I have to say has at least improved in the last 20 years, because as I'm writing this book, I'll be darned, it's been 20 years. We mm -hmm. have not had any issues. Wow. He's out mowing my yard. He comes to the door and he says, I'm Jesus Christ. Just like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I cannot even believe this is happening. He hadn't even seen a psychiatrist in five years. Uh, his died and his primary care had taken over psychotropic drugs. And then I thought, oh my God, are we going to go through this again? Right. Um, you know, and I ended up taking him to a hospital nearby that I knew had a psych unit um, and took him in there. And they actually, and I knew it as an ER nurse, we actually had rooms that you come in suicidal, we've got a one-on-one -on -one to watch you uh, and that kind of thing. So they had evolved, they had an area in their hospital. And I thought, you know, he's not threatening to hurt anybody, but he's clearly not with it. Right. And they admitted him, they <laughs> admitted him. I, I thought, oh, my God, this is the very next day. I thought this. Thank you. Thank you. Right. And you know what that was? That was simply having the antipsychotic generic drug switch to a different manufacturer is what pushed him over. Oh, wow. So, oh you know, you're walking on and I call it the, the, the tightrope between sanity right. and insanity, depending right. on, you know, your, your medication regimen. So it's so important. And then after I retired, um, I went back to work after two years and two days a week at a nearby prison. And so I'm a prison nurse now two days a week. And oh now here's the thing. 
what do we get? We have 1,700 offenders. We have a huge pharmacy. What are most of them getting? Psychotropics. Yeah. So I'm like, you know what? If they were taken care of on the outside, they probably wouldn't be in here. That's right. Yes. Yes. And and like, we emptied our state hospitals right into the prisons. Right. And also what, what you were talking about with Corey, um, having a life, right. Having an apartment, having a social life, right. It, it, It sounds like there's finding that balance there too, where he is independent, but you still are involved. So, so he has that confidence that he feels like he can do it, but you also have the confidence that he's safe and he's taken care of. So what was that like finding that balance for you? It was, let me tell you, it was difficult because um, when we found, first of all, we looked at group homes and, you know, he's not retarded. He's he's a smart guy. And, uh, and I thought this just isn't going to work. He spent a short stint in a, in a, in a, a, a rehab type work environment where most of them were intellectually impaired. And that, that, that just wasn't going anyway. Well, I found out that we could get rental assistance for him and it was just navigating the government as well. You know, okay. he's on SSI, he's making six or 700 a month, but we can find, uh, you know, assisted living right. and we found an apartment for him and I'm driving him over there. We get new furniture for him. We get everything. We're seven miles away and he's screaming at us. You're throwing me out like the trash. You're putting me out like the trash. You don't love me anymore. And, you know, I'm crying. He's crying. I'm like, you know, we're not going to be here forever. The time to get you independent is when you have somebody to fall back on. Right. Exactly. Yes. But within a week, he didn't want to come visit me. (laughs) And he comes over for dinner. He comes over. Well, I'm ready to go back home now. So, you know, it didn't take, it was the right decision. It was the right decision. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That that's the story is just it's amazing that and and thinking back to when he was first diagnosed, was the medication and treatment then more um experimental maybe isn't the word, but is there more confidence today in treatment methods than when he was diagnosed? I think there I think there is, you know, especially as the newer antipsychotics have evolved uh, with the less less side effects, you know, but um, uh, and also to be able to jump on it. Uh, As a matter of fact, now I have a younger son. He's going to be the one that's going to have to step in and -hmm. take over. And he's pretty much until his father died, distanced himself from this. Mm -hmm. And I've had, to, you know, kind of ease him into it. And I told him the other day, Corey's not sleeping you have to keep an eye on this is one of the first signs that okay. if he starts yeah. not sleeping, then, then we have to be right on top of that. So um, yes, you, you have to have somebody, even if they're independent and believe, I don't even have guardianship over him. I have mm-hmm. medical power of attorney mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we have been able to manage this without the expense of a lawyer and all this stuff. Right. Um, so how would you do that? How do you do that? in our society right. when they can say you're violating my civil rights i don't have to take meds and you can't force me and you know, even though i'm crazy and i can't take care of myself without this it's just right it's, I, I don't even know what the answer is to that right and that there's a lot there and um so when you mentioned that he doesn't sleep and that's one of the first signs so that's something you picked up over over the um this whole experience does he tell you that, that he's not sleeping or how do you know? 
No, he'll call me, uh, you know, he, he takes drugs three times a day and for the spasticity from his brain surgery, he has to take muscle relaxants. He has to take anti-seizure meds and the antipsychotics and the antidepressants are at night. So he'll normally get up, take these meds in the morning and sleep till like, you know, afternoon till like two in the afternoon. Then he's up and gone, you know, mm -hmm. up walking around town. He's up until late and whatever. So when he calls me at seven in the morning and he's wide awake, and I'm going, well, you're up early. Well, I didn't sleep very good last night. And then oh, I'm I like, see. okay, we better make sure he sleeps good the next night or, you know, whatever. Right. You know? Right. So those signs are important that may seem, you know, one might seem in insignificant, but what you've come to realize, it sounds like, is that these little things are what lead to the bigger things then. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What would you say you're the most proud of as it relates to your book, your son and the writing process? You know, he's never once... Uh, ever complained about the disability resulting from his brain surgery. Mm -hmm. The fact that he has to drag his leg around, the fact that he can barely see, the fact that, uh, you know, life is hard. He's got one arm that works. Um, he's never griped about that. I brought him home uh, from rehab the first time um, to try home visit, see how we had to, to fix the house up. And I asked him because he had an advanced directive when he, he was on the vent for 30 days and all that. I said, are you sorry that you lived? Mm. And he's like, no, no, I'm not. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll gripe about the stupid, the stupidest things, which are some of the funniest things, which is why I put him in the book because like, you know, of all things here, he's, he's cripping along and he's the slowest person, but boy, can he gripe about other slow people, you know, <laughs> and you know, the, the stupid, why, one of the, the biggest things was why he, he, he goes to Subway, so he has foot-long things, and they make foot-long hot dogs, but you cannot buy a foot-long hot dog bun, and <laughs> they just don't, unless you want to go to Subway and get the, oh my God, it's like a dog with a bone. I'm like, seriously, <laughs> we're going to go in the store and gripe about the foot-long hot dog buns again, you know, it's, and so I tell my girlfriends that, and we'd all laugh, and they'd say, you just got to put that in there, like, because you can't make it up. Right, and, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and his, his short-term memory sucks. It's, it's horrible uh, after brain surgery is worse. But the long-term memory, he's like a savant. It's like, um, oh. who, play, who won the World Series in 1946 or whatever? And he'll tell you, you know. Oh, wow. So wow. It, it's, it's really, it's really um, uh, crazy. Um, he's not like, uh, he's a very people-oriented person. Mm -hmm. um, he, he never knew a stranger. He never did when he was a kid. He, don't, he doesn't now. He'll talk to anybody. And there are towns that I go to surrounding us. They'll always say, oh, you're Corey's mother. I know Corey. <laughs> like, or we'll run into somebody that knows Corey. You know, so it, um, I think all things happen for a reason. I really yeah. do. Yeah. And, um, and how you um, react to them is going to shape, shape your entire life. It really is. I, I, as many people, had dreams and aspirations for a son that might become a doctor, might become a lawyer, might be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, self-sufficient and a great guy. And now I'm absolutely thrilled. He's living on his own and has a coherent conversation. So, you know, um, yeah, that was path. right. And, and allowing that, but then also hearing you talk about him, I mean, his attitude is amazing, which is a great yeah a great, um, like it, it, that people see that and pick up on that night shines out into the world. Right. And who knows the impact he has on other people, um, just being himself. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, you wouldn't know that though when you call. I call in in the morning. It's not a morning person. I'm not a morning person. I'm not either. So I get it. You know, so I call him up at eight o'clock to remind him every morning to take his pills. And he'll answer, God damn it. I know it. Get off my ass. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll say, I love you too, dear. And see you later. And, you know, by that night, I mean, he's Jekyll and Hyde. He's okay. You know, but I just know, I just know to expect that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kim, this has been an amazing conversation. And I know uh, listeners who are maybe in similar situations or no others that are, are dealing with something like this. Um, your book and what you've offered today is, um, is so incredible. And it's in such a inspiring perspective. And also um, just how you, your, your intuition and not giving up on finding your, that path for your son that was right for him. So I want to congratulate you on your book. Um, and thank you for coming on the books on your podcast today. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. But before we close today, what's one thing you want to leave the readers with to make sure they know about your book? Uh, Well, I do have a a Facebook page, Kim Hopkins. So it's on there and also a Facebook shopping with a schizophrenic Facebook page on there. And I I had a person write in and say, uh, when they Amazon reviewed my book, I wish you would give more day-to-day experiences on what it's like living with a person with mental illness. So I do on my Facebook page, I, I do update blogs on, on stuff that happens, you know, Okay, um, yeah. this is how this goes. And, you know, this is what we encounter is stuff you, you know, is so routine for us now. And you think, oh, it's got to be boring. So I put on my, and then I, I do have a website, it's a, a schizophrenicstory.com. So, you know, okay. anytime there. Okay. And I'll be sure to link to all that in the, uh, in the show notes as well. Awesome. My guest this week has been Kim Hopkins, author of the book shopping with a schizophrenic. You can find more about the book on Amazon and I'll link to to that in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. You've been listening to the books on air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net. You can also hear this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Sloan Fremont, and I hope you'll join us for the next next Books on Air podcast. Remember, you never know who's going to be here, and you never know what we're going to talk about. Thank you so much for listening. Mm